Uh, my name's Tom, and I'm uh, honored to be the, the teaching elder, preaching pastor here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church. And uh, uh, we're going to be opening up uh, Psalm 73 this morning. So if you can go there. A little, uh, a little heads up. Next week, we're going to start our, our series back in the mornings. Uh, we're going to go into the book of Acts, and we're going to do a 10, 11-week summary of, of, of all the different ways and all the different manners in which we see God's providence move the spread of the gospel as it sweeps through the world. We're going to be taking lessons from that ourselves, of course, as a church. And in the evenings, next week, we start uh, in the evenings here and on the Gold Coast, a series in the book of Colossians. So uh, we'll, we'll take basically all of term four to do uh, Colossians, plus a little bit extra into the holidays. And uh, that, no doubt, will be a blessing to us. But Psalm 73 is where we find ourselves this morning. The Psalms are some of the most practical chapters in the Bible. If it's not one of the ones where you get caught up with all of the tricky names and the weird uh, uh, places of locations, which tend to sort of derail us sometimes, and yes, the, the call to worship guys usually avoid those ones. Uh, we'll pin them on one of the hard ones soon, but, uh, but you, don't, you don't want to even hear James try and manage those names. Uh, <coughs> the simple ones are, are hard enough, right, mate? <coughs> For state school educated brothers. Uh, <coughs> nonetheless, the Psalms are very, very practical. In one hand, because they're, they're so good to be sung in worship, as they were in ages past, and as we do, uh, we just sung a version of or a redo of Psalm 148, and we sing others. Uh, we read them in public, like we said, as our call to worship, to bring our minds and hearts to readiness in the presence of God. And of course, in personal prayer, the Psalms are, and I'm sure I'm speaking to the choir here, the Psalms are so practical to open up and pray through in our times of prayer. But of course, especially helpful they are in those times of despondency, in those times that the Puritans used to call the, the dark night of the soul, the spiritual desert that we find ourselves in. And Psalm 73 is no different. This is a, this is a song, a psalm, a prayer, a little autobiographical uh, account for the Christian soul that is, that is like a boat at sea, that is just stuck in the midst of a storm, and that is being assailed wave after wave, and wind after wind, and downpour after downpour of rain, of the attacks of paradox. Paradox is one of the, look, it's something we have to get our heads around, or, or, or be okay with not getting our heads around, because it's a paradox, you literally can't get your head around it. But the paradox is, is those points in Scripture, sometimes it's in doctrine, sometimes it's just in our own lived experience where, where we see things just tugging at each other. One is, as, is over on the east and one is over on the west and there seems to be an infinite tension that we just can't bring into a slack. We just can't relax with because they're, they're pulling at our soul. Some of the paradoxes we see in this psalm include the fact that the wicked man or the unrighteous people on the earth, they hate God. They hate the truth of God. They hate the ways of God. They hate God. And at the same time, they seem to have a most blessed relationship with him. He just seems to be their biggest fan. And you know what? Every now and then they do give thanks to him. And they do, they do uh, uh, thank, for, thank him for all of the greatness that they have in their life. At the same time, they're so unrighteous and seem to be so free of the righteous God's condemnation. God in this psalm is, is, is apparently so good and yet seems so inactive and seems to care so little about the evil of the unrighteousness in the world. The righteous person, Asaph, the, the psalmist writing here, or it might have been a psalm that was for Asaph. I think it was by Asaph. 
But anyway, here's Asaph. He's a righteous man, and he is so sure. He is more sure of nothing else than God's existence and his goodness. And he is more questioning of nothing than God's existence and his goodness. He's both so sure and so questioning of these fundamental realities in his life. His heart is set on desiring nothing but God, and he is so fickle as to desire everything else except for God. So follow with me as I read this psalm. I'll be reading from Psalm, uh, sorry, from the ESV. It says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly stumbled, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everybody who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. May God bless his word in our midst this morning. This psalm starts extremely well. It starts very, look at verse 1. He starts in a tremendous place. Verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a good start, right? He is... He's just said the thing that he is most sure of in this psalm and the thing which he will spend the next half of it or more questioning. This verse he is convinced of, and yet this verse is what every line of doubt really runs back to and assails. It will be what he returns back to at the end of the psalm, but until then, 
filled with questioning this reality, that God is good to Israel. I like to think that maybe, maybe this was written in the time of his morning devotions, spiritually despondent, dark night of the soul, depression overflowing him, and, and he, uh, he takes to the word, and he reads for himself part of the Pentateuch, and he reads for himself the, the promises in Scripture that God has spoken to Israel. And despite everything that he feels and everything that he, that he naturally thinks, he comes across the lines in the Ten Commandments and in the prologue before God gives the commandments, which said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he realizes, he remembers, God is good to Israel. The word reminds me, he is good to Israel. Then in the, the, the second commandment, as God is commanding uh, away from idolatry, God says that he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Those are the pure in heart. God is good to Israel, and the word also tells him that, the, that God is good to the pure in heart. That's why it's so certain to the psalmist. In fact, you need to understand how spiritual warfare works. The things that you know in, from Scripture, the revealed truths of God, are the things that we are at the same time the most certain about, but because of the way the devil works, those are the things that will face the strongest and most constant attacks of doubt and questioning and deception from the enemy. And so this is, this is the temptation. To believe that God is no better to his chosen people in the Old Testament, Israel, in the New Testament, the church, to believe that God is no better to his chosen people than to the world, that we get as much of his anger and then they get as much of his blessings. That's the temptation that the psalmist is now facing. Though he knows this from Scripture, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, the temptation is to doubt exactly that. And this really is, this is the sum of the Christian life. The truths revealed by Scripture, as we said, are those things which are the firmest that we know, and yet they are the, 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 the brunt, they take the brunt of all of the attack. They are at the focus of the, uh, of the wiles of the enemy so that we doubt them from our flesh, so that we question them from our heart. And the enemy knows this and inspires them. This is, if you think of the workman's, the, the blacksmith's workplace, you walk into the shed, blacksmith's door, you need a, a sword, uh, struck, you need a, a new lock made, whatever it is, you go in and there you are in the blacksmith's shed. And, and, and if you were to look around and gauge everything on a spectrum from most solid down to most malleable, you'll have the little alfoil, uh, aluminium foil things down on this side, the, the easily plied things. And then, and then up on the end of the spectrum that is most solid, most firm, most sound, most unbreakable would be the anvil. The anvil, for the young ones, that's the thing that drops on top of Y.E. Coyote's head all the time. The anvil. Let's ask a different question with the same answer. What thing in the workshop receives the most beatings, strikings, and assaults? It's the anvil. It's the anvil. You need to think of scriptural truths in your heart as a Christian as the anvil of truth, but expect that all kinds of things will come up to it to beat it and strike it and hit it. And therefore, that, that should just, just uh, in that simple analogy, make sense of a lot of our life, a lot of our despondency, a lot of our spiritual depression and distress. So what is the truth that is under here in verse 1 before we keep on going? The truth is that God is good to his covenant people. 
But of course, in the Old Testament, being a part of Israel, and God made sure they knew this, being a part of Israel proper, Israel as a whole, was not enough to make sure that you're a pure person. There was plenty of people within Israel who were cursed by God for their unrighteousness and their wickedness, no less the kings themselves and the unrighteous and corrupted priests as it would happen. So, of course, it's not just enough to, to say that God is good to Israel. That's true. If you're in Israel, you get all of God's special blessings compared to any other nation on earth. But specifically, more permanently, God is good to those who are pure in heart. In New Covenant language, we can say this. God is good to the church. If you're here, you are under the rich blessings, the richest of common grace blessings that God has ever poured out on people on earth. You're in the sound of the gospel. You get to hear and know about the truth of God, whereas other people worship trees and waters and rocks and demons. And yet, that's not enough to say that if you're in the church, you're in God's good grace. Furthermore, we should say that God is good to those who through hearing of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ have thrown their filthy souls towards him for salvation have given themselves to the Lord God to be forgiven, have called on his name for grace and salvation. Those are the pure in heart because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus, we've been forgiven by his life, death, and resurrection, and we've been placed into a a permanent, unchangeable right standing with the Father. Amen? That's the gospel. Not Not that you're being called here to be pure in heart enough, then God will be good to you, but that part of what God pours out on you through the gospel is a pure heart. That's his promise, that he has given us pure hearts by which we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then we are identified as people who are purifying our hearts day by day. To those people, those who have faith in Christ and pursue his likeness, God is eternally good. And we need to start there before we start digging and exegeting our own souls. Let's remember the scriptural truth before we we now turn to our own fallibility. So look at verse 2. This is where he, where he confesses his unsound footing. I don't know if you've ever climbed a, climbed a, a, a mountain. We're going to be going to Nepal soon, a, a, a land of, that took me a lot of convincing, talking to my doctors that I'm going to be okay to go to Nepal, uh, uh, telling them there won't be many hills, I won't be walking, we'll just be taking nice smooth uh, limo rides everywhere. Don't worry, finally got them to sign the medical certificate. Nepal, large mountains. Uh, I don't know if you've done rock climbing or hiking or th- those other sorts of things. Uh, But that feeling, or maybe it's just ice skating, or just uh, uh, put it here, or rollerblading, or you know what? Getting up in the morning. Whatever it is for you, uh, that at some point in your past, you remember when your foot, or maybe it's during the dream. I'm trying to relate to everybody here. You ever, for those who can't even relate to getting up, just the sleepers. Uh, You remember when you're lying in bed and you're almost asleep, and, and your foot slips in your dream, and you flail like you've got a demon coming out of you, and you smash your wrist on the alarm clock, and you, you, you just convulse because your mind sends into your gut that, that adrenaline rush when you're about to slip. The psalmist is right there. He's poised, he's held with that feeling in his gut right there. It's, it's like he's been there for months. In your bulletins, you'll find a, a short and small account of the life of David Brandon. He was a man who lived his life on the edge of slipping into unbelief, he felt. Continual, unlifting, dark depression. Don't let anybody tell you that if you're a Christian, there's no such thing as deep and dark feelings or depression or anything like that. Come down, we'll anoint you with something and you'll feel better. No, no, no. No, no, no. The Christian, the true Christian, the psalmist can write 
of being poised in a feeling like they are dangling over a height. They are about to fall into the pit of unbelief. That feeling, that feeling is what he's having here. Verse 2, he's spoken of God. That's what God's like, but me, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. They were on the way out from underneath him. And what was the cause of his slipping? It was that his soul is being tempted by what he sees in the unrighteous life. So look at verse 3. As he's out at storm, out at sea and the storm is assailing, what is the waters that keep on filling his vessel? It is envy. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Need to let you in on a couple of little secrets here. Uh, you are not perfect. Take a while for that to sink in. In fact, you're extremely far from perfect. You embody imperfection and sin. Okay? <clears throat> Second little secret, God knows that. Psalm 103, God knows that we are dust, and that's before we even become idolatrous, adulterous, sinful dust. We're just made of dust even, even when we're perfect. You're imperfect, we all are, God knows that. And, another secret, none of God's people throughout all of time have ever been perfect. Can we say in some degree that we are pure in heart, those who relate to God through grace? Yes, of course, but that's relating to him through forgiveness because you're not objectively pure in heart. The last little secret, he wrote the Bible with his imperfect people in mind. This psalm strikes us with a great deal of honesty. Are we actually allowed to confess? Is he actually allowed to write down in his inspired journal that will go into scripture for all time that he is questioning the goodness of God and his faithfulness to those who are pure in heart when he explicitly told us he is good even to the thousandth generation? He doesn't actually question scriptural truths, does he? He sounds a lot like us, doesn't he? We're imperfect, God knows it. And he wrote the Bible so that in our imperfections, in our waywardness, in our sin, we can relate to what has been written. This is the common temptation. Questioning whether righteousness is worth it. Questioning how, how worth a life devoted to Jesus really is when, when you just look around and you see that in this world, righteousness doesn't always pay off a great deal. In fact, it's a much more lucrative market to be unrighteous. Amen? Some of you used to not be Christians as adults, and now you are Christians, and you can recognize the market is a lot slimmer of what you can do, what you can sell, what you can say, who you can do business with, what you can, what you can just enjoy. The market is a lot slimmer. Unrighteousness pays off a lot better in this world than righteousness. This is at least the temptation that Asaph is feeling. Look at the next verse, verse 4 and 5. We see him start looking towards the life of the wicked. From... The perspective, not of Scripture, but from the perspective of an imperfect saint recorded for us in Scripture. Mark the difference there. It is an inspired, inerrant account of what an imperfect, sinful saint is feeling. He says in verse 4 and 5, Because the wicked have no pains, no pangs, nothing that strikes them or pierces them until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Uh, doesn't mean if you're skinny, you're all good. 
But of course, in a day in an agricultural climate and culture, uh, those, who, those who were fat were, were a rarity, and they had much more than they needed. The rest of us are on survival mode. The rest of us are working hard just to get a day's, food, a, a, a day's meal towards the end of the day. To be fat and sleek is, in fact, an indulgence. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, now if you think objectively, that is, that is the experience of literally nobody. Nobody has no pains until they die. Nobody is just eating well and enjoying everything right up until the moment. They, they have to die of something, right? Like unless it's their enormous pile of gold just falls down on top of them while they're dreaming of something glorious and they die. Unless it's that, everybody, is, I mean, p- death is painful in some degree. They've got to die of something. Uh, no one is actually experiencing what he is saying. But, but of course, <laughs> reality isn't the ruling uh, 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 sovereign in our hearts, is it? Sin makes us illogical. Sin makes us uh, not think black and white, not think according to the, the reality of God's revealed truth. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, the great theologian, uh, he used to say, comparison, comparison is the thief of all joy. Envy, when fed, doesn't turn miraculously into contentness, right? Contented hearts. Envy, when fed with envy, turns into stronger envy. Covetousness, fed, turns into stronger covetousness. It doesn't turn into a content heart because you fed the envy enough. Envy, by nature and definition, is unsatisfiable. The more you put in, the further the bottom goes down. It's an unfillable hole. And so here, with his envy... Now, of course, envy is also uh, misshapen glasses that totally fog up life. When you look through the glass of envy at other people's lives, it's one of those tremendous filters like you can get for free on social media. I do recommend it for some. And you can get these, these filters that just cover up your imperfections highlight the best parts of you, make you look all sorts of kind of muscular or larger or more beautiful or longer hair or the hair color that you want. That's what envy does to our vision. We look at other people's lives whose whose marriage is literally on the rocks, whose spiritual life has never been worse, who despise every life decision they've ever made and are wishing that God would in this moment kill them. And we look at them and go, "They, they have the car that was an upgrade of mine. Their life is perfect. And, and every, everything that I've got, a beautiful marriage, a, a helpful helpmate, a, a wonderful children, a, a blessed communion with the saints in a Bible-loving church, it's hell until I get that 10 grand upgrade. Then everything would be good. I mean, envy just, just erases the, the, the parts of their life that are in fact hard, and therefore he's saying the, right, the unrighteous have no pains until death. Really? They're not in trouble as anybody else are. They're never stricken like the rest of mankind. It's, it's truly a foolish thing to say. Look at verse 6 and 9 because he, he gets worse. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. This is, this is the outfit of the unrighteous. They've got pride on as a necklace. They've got a beautiful coat made of violence. Their eyes are swollen. It's a weird phrase here. No one really knows what it means. Let's pretend it's, it's like eye makeup. Their eyes are beautiful through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice at other people. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They're tyrannical and abusive. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. What a picture that is, a strutting tongue filled with arrogance. I want to point out, so that we can remind ourselves of how realistic this psalm is and how realistic I try to be in the exposition of the word, the advantages of a wicked heart and life. Don't take notes here. The advantages of a wicked heart and life. First of all, there is, as, as detailed in this psalm, unrestrained greed. When you're unrighteous, if you would just go out and, and leave away God's law and, and his, his rules and commands in your life and holiness and Christ-likeness, you would find that actually you don't have to limit your greed. You, you, you therefore, can, can fill your life with riches and possessions. And secondly, you're not restrained by a content heart. So, so where you might at the moment... Go to spend a certain amount on a car, a house, a, a clothing, whatever it be, and, and you might say, I, I have this much money, I, I see this product, I don't need to buy everything else, I, this will do. Right? It's no competition, I'm not trying to show off my life and my pride through my possessions, I, uh, this will do, it's less money, it's, it's more humble, this will do everything I need it to do, I'm not going to go and buy a piece of trash that, will, that will, 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 will give some kind of false sense of humility and being wise, this is enough, I'm content. And then the unrighteous guy comes in and buys the exact car, dress, his wife, uh, 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 necklace, jewelry, bike, house that you could have got, but you went without because you were content and God doesn't do the justice of, of sort of this perfectly level playing field where everything in life, this is how we want it to be sometimes, everything in life that you go without, God then throws in a furnace so no one else can have. Right? No. He often lets us see somebody come in gobble it up, and boast about it. That's how life is. The house, the car, the, 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 the friend, the, 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 the relationship, whatever it be, other people get what we go without. So I, uh, without contentment, uh, uh, without a content heart, you, these people have all a lot more than what they need. Thirdly, they're not limited by morality, which is a great advantage. As we said before, it's more of a free market, so to speak, because nothing's off limits. You can sell literally anything, any part of your body, any goods, any area of life, you can find a market to make money off. In fact, because you're not even limited by morality, there's, there's no harm in also leveraging tragedies and using people's downfall or, or, or world situations where people are suffering to kind of uh, prop up your political or reputation or, or money or, 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 or leveraging the market for your own good. There's just no limitation by that. It's tremendous. It really is a, a free market in every meaning of the world. They also publicly boast of it continually. You at least wish if people were unrighteous and selfish, they'd shut up. But they don't. And we as as fools follow them on social media, give an ear to their boasting, or, or sometimes we can't help it. They're the guy in the opposite cubicle at work. They're the, 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 the mum that you also hang out with, and they just love to tell you of the tremendous benefits that unrighteousness has brought to them. Also, the, the benefits of an unrighteous life is that uh, you have a calloused heart. 
Life is a lot easier if you just sear off and, and throw away all tenderness of conscience. Don't think about the word. Don't think about the law. Don't really care about it. It starts to callous that off, and then you stop caring. And life is a lot easier. Their sins just don't seem to bother them. So this isn't even possessions now. Now we just think of the, of the unrighteous person. We compare them, how happy they are, how, how ease of life they're experiencing, and then we think of ourselves maybe crying ourselves to sleep, waking up in a, in a pit of, of doom and gloom and depression, and we just think, can, can I not at least feel as good as them? Can they not at least feel as bad as me if, if I'm righteous and they're unrighteous? Have what they want, possession-wise, but at least feel terrible, and, and they don't because they've done that tremendous advantage of searing and callousing their conscience. These people are very handy in politics, by the way, whether it's world politics, workplace politics, church politics, uh, because they often find themselves in the inner circle or the cool crowd at school. They find themselves there because, because they're, so, they're so useful. They're so good to have in your orbit. These people always find themselves to the top, increasing our own envy. Teenagers can look towards other teenagers and think that these are the guys that have the great life. They're not limited by a godly parent rule. They're not limited by having to be at church on Sunday morning. It's hangover day for them on Sundays. They have all the unlimited uh, license and money and ability to do what they want, and we are tremendously jealous. When they do suffer, here's one of the other things, an advantage of an unrighteous life. When they do suffer, they're kept from a proud heart from ever ad admitting it. So if they are suffering in their marriage, their workplace, anything else that would cause them uh, difficulty, they, they don't mention it, they, they cover that up. And then on the extremes, the rich and the selfish often don't die the sufferable deaths like the poor do. On the extremes, really at the top of society uh, or in an agricultural society, the, the, the topper end and the rich, they don't usually die of things like starvation, uh, getting mauled to death by a cow that you were trying to farm with being thrown under a piece of machinery, the, the common cold taking you and destroying the lungs. It doesn't happen like that to the rich and the glorious and the powerful. So think of the psalmist now in all of these realities, being acutely aware of the advantages pouring into the life of the unrighteous, who says in verse 5, they're just not in trouble as others are. And then we get to the real tragedy. The darkest, I think, of this whole psalm is not what the unrighteous do, but what the righteous are tempted to do. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 and 12, it says, Therefore his people, that is God's people, turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. God's people are finding themselves tempted, thinking this way envying the wicked, and then falling into the temptation to say, I'm reading providence. I'm looking at life. I'm counting up my experience. And though the word says that God is righteous and good to the pure in heart, I'm looking at the life of the unrighteous, and it turns out God is not all that righteous as he claims. And if he is, God is not all that all-knowing that he claims to be, because here they are thriving in unrighteousness and riches. So God's people turn away from him and go to the unrighteous and say, there's no unrighteousness in this. There's riches. God doesn't know. Can we be held accountable for our worldliness? And this will be charged in some degree to the guilt of the unrighteous that they tempt away God's people. But of course, the responsibility falls flat on God's people who, who unlike Asaph, 
do not return to God at the end of the psalm. Nonetheless, we even see Asaph's confession in verse 13 and 14. He said, God's people in general just look towards unpunished unrighteousness and envy their wickedness and follow after them. Verse 13, all in vain I... Now, this, this is his own confession now. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I suffer throughout the day. It's hard to get to sleep at night. And when I wake up, I feel guilty over my conscience. I have been trying to keep my heart clean for nothing. There is no gain in righteousness. My life is not easier. My bank account is not fuller. My loved ones are not being stopped from dying or getting sick. There is no worth in righteousness and holiness. There's no extra blessing to be given or available for the pure at heart. We are ultimately fools. In Paul's words, we are the most to be pitied. My prayers, my fighting temptation, my avoiding unrighteousness, it makes me poorer, sadder, less popular, and for nothing. We can get to the point in temptation when we feel that there is no, there is a little bit of gain in sin. We get to the point in temptation when we, we're not just feeling tempted towards the wrong, but we actually, in our thinking, conclude in this, in the real world, like, like the Bible's this floating uh, substance above everything else. It's not really real. It doesn't know the struggles of the real fallen world. But in the real world, sometimes just slivers of sin are actually advantageous to both God's kingdom, God's people, and our souls. There's some advantage to be taken in unrighteousness. This is the sneaky deception of the devil. Godliness has relieved none of my sufferings. This is the low point of the psalm. And this is the low point of our soul whenever we find ourselves here. At this point, the psalmist, he's a saint who on the promises of God has sailed away from the land of sin and death. And now, in the midst of the storm, is looking back to that land, and he's seeing through foggy glass, he's seeing through rusty instruments, he's seeing through, through the clouds and the rain, and he's pining for that land again. He's like the Egyptians, sorry, the Jews taken out of Egypt about to see victory, who starts saying, I don't think slavery was that bad. I know I have one eye because I was punched continually by the Egyptians. I know we, we all hobble with a weird walk because our backs are scarred up with, with whips all the day long. I know my dad is dead because of the, the murderous Egyptians, but wasn't it great? Sin makes us foolish. Sin makes us foolish. He's looking back and he is lost. Verse 15, though, this is the redemption. I know that if I took a poll, at least in the heart of hearts, we'd all acknowledge and agree that we've all been here. We've all thought these things far too often. And yet, we see this grace. We're feeling these things and then outwardly confessing and speaking these things are worlds apart. He says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak these things, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That is, if I had spoken outwardly, given, I would have given credibility to my thoughts. I would have sanctioned them. I would have given them the blessing to, to rule, not just in my own thoughts, but in the conversation of other people. I would have been starting to shoot at the hull of my other saints who are out at sea and start making them to sink and to fail. 
I would have polluted the hearts of God's people. And you see him saying, I won't do that. If I had said those things out loud and spoken them in the congregation of the people, I would have been guilty. There was a, a story of a pilot who was returning from a, a, uh, uh, an air raid mission in, in, I believe it was the First World War, over in Europe. He was, he was from the Brits and and he'd finished his job and he was returning home, but there was a, a huge storm and, and a lot of wind that was, was crossing enormous areas and especially over the channel, which he needed to pass to get back to England. And, and he was above the cloud cover, so he couldn't see the land, uh, no clue where he was, couldn't see the, the lights of the country underneath him. And, and as he was flying, his, he, he had received radio before the communications cut out uh, to, to trust the, the instruments because, because he won't be able to see the ground. And he will likely not have fuel enough to return to land if he misses his spot. And so he's flying, and, and his instruments start alarming, time to touch down. But this guy knows that he's, he's probably only traveled half of his distance back. And he's caught in this, in this fork of the road. Do I trust the instruments that I know are wrong, or do I trust my expertise, my decades as a pilot, my, uh, my experience? What do I trust? Because it's an analogy in a sermon, you're trying to think which way it's going. Does he do? Is it bad because he trusts himself, or was he supposed to trust what he knew, but or are the instruments that I don't know? Because in your analogy before, the instruments were the problem. So what? Which way are we going to go? I'll let you think about it for a bit. He knew the fact was that the, the, that his instruments were wrong. He, it's a war vessel. He had been shot at. There's every reason to think that they're faulty, and so he he stays up. And in the time that he knew he would have been coming, he would be above land and time to land down, he, he comes under the cloud cover and England is long gone behind him. He's in the Celtic Sea. And try as he would to turn around, the communications told him, you are far, far away from any landing possibility that we have. You couldn't hear us, we were trying to tell you, but you had a strong tailwind behind you. You made tremendous time. And now you're over the Celtic Sea. We'll send a, we'll send a rescue. We'll, we'll try and save you, but see if you can make a, a water landing. But of course, the storm wouldn't allow that. He went down in the Celtic Sea dead because he didn't trust those, those instruments. He trusted himself, his experience. He read the providence. He was trying to interpret the instruments by what he could see instead of interpreting what he could see through the instruments designed for that exact purpose. Spurgeon used to say that as Christians, we must never interpret the scriptural promises by the providence around us. Here's what I see. Here's what God has decreed. Here's what I, what I see around me in my life. Here's what's happening. That becomes the lens through which I interpret the Bible. These promises are conditioned by really my experience. These commands are, are conditioned by what I'm seeing around me. No, don't live that way. Spurgeon said, rather interpret the providence, what we see, through the promises. Because they are designed for this very purpose. God spoke into a fallen world to fallen saints so that in our despondency and darkness we might have a lamp that shines. So he refuses to say those things. Matthew Henry used to say, there is no disputing against our senses except by faith. If your senses, what you see, what you touch, what you think, what you feel, experience, if those things are lying to you, if those things are taking you into the pit of despondency, you can't then use those same senses to get you out. 
Okay, well, what do I see? What, what else do I see? What, who else's life can I think about? No, those senses will only lead you further astray. The only way to elevate our souls above what we sense and feel and see and touch is by faith. To know the things we cannot see because we live by faith and not by sight. Verse 16 and 17 says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That, that, that's the exact experience we've just been talking about. He's looking around, trying to read Providence, trying to exegete the situations around him, and he goes, this is wearisome. This is impossible. I have to jettison all of the Bible if I'm to trust what I see. So how do I do this? It's so wearisome until, until he went into the sanctuary of God, and then he discerned the end. Friend, what happened? in the Old Covenant, in the sanctuary of God. You would hear singing, the hymns, and the psalms uplifting God's holiness and righteousness. You would see paintings and, and tapestry recalling the salvation from Egypt where God saved his people, who he let suffer under the rich unrighteous for 400 years. You see the, the pictures, the carvings, the gold, the songs, and you hear the word being exegeted. You hear the explanation of the ancient scrolls. You see the priests making sacrifices and spilling the blood, promising atonement for those who come and confess their sin. There, he realized, our senses lead us to foolishness and unbelief, but the word leads us to God and truth. And he recognized their end. The reason, the reason we are tempted by wicked rich, riches is not because we think about them too much, right? My application here is not going to be stop thinking about the, the riches of the wicked. Just pretend it doesn't happen. Don't be bothered by it. Just get over it. No, the reason we're tempted with envy towards the riches of the wicked is not because we think about them too much or too deeply. It's because we think about them too little and too shallowly. If you really think about it, not just what are they enjoying, what are they posting, what do I see on the outside but what is really the truth of the matter? What does God say about their hearts, their experience, their lives, and, of course, their end? And we see this warning so that we ourselves are kept from chasing them to their destruction. Now we see everything from God's point of view. Verse 18 through 20, look in your Bible. It says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It could in some measure refer to the fact that, you know, in real life, when we really watch them, evil people end up falling down the corporate ladder once they've climbed it, because they've oiled it with evil all the way up, and everybody else on the top is pretty treacherous too, and they're all knocking each other down. Yeah, maybe there's some of that. Unrighteousness always ends up catching up with you, but that's, that's not ultimately the truth of it because, because that's not an absolute fact. Some people sin their way to the top, live up top, and die up top. The reality that he's speaking about is a universal reality. Every unrighteous person experiences this terror, this falling from the most slippery of places. And he's talking about the transition from life to death. At death, they slip from their pretended heights. The house of cards comes tumbling down and they slide into terror. 
into judgment. They realized that they were, they were wrong. The truth that they've been suppressing all of their life is a reality. God does have knowledge. His eyes did wander throughout all the earth. He did see and account every one of my sins and my riches are in this moment no salvation. My riches, my belongings, my possessions, my, my reputation, none of it can save me in the day of God's wrath. I have been accumulating riches in life, but truly I have been accumulating wrath for punishment. Look at how he says uh, in verse 20, like a dream when one awakes. We would tend to think the imagery works well, you're awake, you're living, then you fall asleep at death. He's saying it's the other way around. For the unrighteous, they're living a dream. They wake up to reality when they die. Thinking they close their eyes in death. Thinking they're being laid down dust to dust, ashes to ashes, to rest in peace at the, the, at the eulogies of their loved ones. They are in fact waking up to the true reality that God's wrath is just and final and eternal. That's what they're waking up to. When any true saint, when anyone who is pure in heart, no matter how difficulty, how, how, with how much difficulty you've been suffering of late, to consider these things makes the allure of the wicked, the gold and the girls and the glittery things of the world simply fade away. The envy we have for them disappears like a fog in the rising sun. It immediately sinks away. Look at his return to reason in verse 21 and 22. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This is the sign of true repentance, the true confession of the soul. I was a fool. I'm not going to try and reason, uh, justify, make it sound reasonable why I wanted those things, God. I was like a beast. I was like one of the cows that just keep eating what's in front of it. I was like a sheep that just keeps following who's in front of it. I was, I was a beast. I wasn't thinking. I didn't have the, the light of reason really turned on in my heart and mind, or I would have thought according to the word. I wanted it, I chased after it, I fell for it. Nevertheless, he says, verse 23, look at the grace of God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. He doesn't say, but on offer is your presence, but I might be led by you if I get back to my purity of heart. The very first step of repentance, the very first step that the pure heart makes is to remember that God has always been with me because, lo and behold, and hallelujah and amen, he is not as fickle as I am. He doesn't jump in and out of the, of the commitment, of the, of the covenant like I do. He doesn't try and try and chase at one moment and then get distracted by, by those impure at heart and get, get impressed by the people with that upgraded car, with the gold and the girls and the, fa and the life that, that I had desired. And he's not envious like I'm envious. He has chosen with every bit of freedom. When he could have chosen a people, a person, a church, a group, a kingdom made up of entirely different people had he wanted to, he chose you. He chose us. And when he could have manifested his salvation so that, so that we are rich in life or we're all perfect and never faulting in life so that we are sinless in this life, he didn't ordain that. He ordained a life where sin would assail us so that always and ever our lives are giving glory to his grace. He will, from first to last, be known as the God of 
grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, the Christian is not a good man. He's a vile wretch who has been saved by the grace of God. And that vile wretch knows, though I am imperfect, God has been continually with me, never letting go of my right hand. I tell you, when I, when I cross the street, of course I tell my, my son, my toddler, to hold my hand. But that's not enough, because he's a toddler. Or what is enough is rather, the reason he's not flattened, the reason he's still with us today is because I grip that hand with a father's strength. And so it is with God to us. Yes. Does he tell you, push forward in repentance, avoid unrighteousness, kill sin, be pure of heart? Yes, of course he tells you that. And when you haven't been, and your foot is just about to slip, and your, your body weight leans over the abyss, what catches you? It is that the Father has held you by your right hand every moment of every day since you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. What an enormous difference this makes in our mindsets and therefore in the rest of our life. To the envy of the wicked, our unhappiness and holiness, to realize that God is still leading you, sanctifying you, and promising to take you to your eternal home. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there one 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. This, this mindset, I'm fallible, he is perfect, this leads to his next confession. Whom have I, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now here we return to the paradox. You might want to call him a hypocrite because he said at the very beginning, I desire literally everything that the unrighteous person has, even their fatness. And here he's saying, I desire nothing on earth besides you. Which is it? Well, the reality, you know, is that these are both true just about all of the time. This is why even Paul in his New Testament writings will speak of within you the old man that needs to be crucified every day or he'll climb off the cross and try and take you to hell. It's an inward person. It's as if he's disembodied here. The first half of the psalm, the last half of the psalm. This thing within me, it's me, it's my heart, it's me, but I'm over here standing firm on the truth, on the reality of the new creation. I have been made new in God. And, and in the deepest heart of hearts, there is nothing that I want beside you. There's nothing that I desire other than you. You're the only thing I have. But Lord, you know that I desire everything besides you. The two natures of the Christian, the old sinful nature, the new spiritual nature are fighting against themselves. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And then he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail. My senses may lead me wrong. How does your flesh fail you? Well, it just keeps on wanting all the things that God has said very explicitly, don't do, don't want, don't have, don't commit, don't think. My body desires those things more than it desires anything else. 
That is how my flesh fails me. It totally betrays me. It is not a good friend. It is not a good co-soldier. It is terrible. It runs away from me at every moment like the most rabid dog on a leash. It tries to chew through it and break out. That's my flesh. It's failing me. It's not helping me. And how does my heart fail me? It's a dumb chihuahua. It can't do anything about this situation. It just yaps away and runs off. It's weak. It's failing my heart. It thinks wrongly about God. It feels wrongly about God. It thinks of God as unsatisfying. It thinks of God as undesirable. What, a, what an insult based in illogical falsitudes. That God would not be satisfying, that God would not be sought after, that God would not be glorious, beautiful, all-consuming. My flesh fails me, my heart fails me, so what do I have left? My God. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When my heart fails, God strengthens it to believe. Now, why doesn't he mention flesh? Why doesn't he say, my, God is the strength of my flesh as well? Because the flesh, the outward man, is dying and passing away. And in this life, what we have is the promise that though it fails, though it assails us, though it continues to desire, our heart is at that, that seat of the affections. Our heart, by our mind, when renewed, has the power to hold that flesh in place. He strengthens our heart, and from there we have strength over the ship. God makes sure my heart doesn't fail and my flesh stays strong, but he is the strength I need. It is him and not myself. This is the goodness of God. All of our strength amidst all of our frailty. All of our frailty amidst all of our strength is just another opportunity to throw yourself on his grace and give him glory. And then we see the gospel here. Not just general good news for Christians, but the gospel reality here in verse 27 to 28. Those who are far from you shall perish. For behold, he's having such an intimate conversation with God and his soul that he tells God to behold something. Remember God, and he's talking to himself, behold, all who are far from you shall perish. This is called preaching to yourself. When the temptation keeps coming, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the law to yourself and remind yourself that for these things, the wrath of God is coming. For behold, all who are far from you, God, shall perish. You put an end to everybody who is unfaithful to you. Friends, this is the reality. If you're outside of Christ, if you've not come to him and received a pure heart, if you have not entrusted your sins to Jesus, who died and rose and now reigns to bring to God everybody who trusts in him, Sinners though we are, though we have failed God's glorious standard, though we have, have insulted and disobeyed and rebelled against his law, we can be made right with God and his call is to be made right through his death so you don't have to die. Made right through his sacrifice so that you do not have to die in hell over and over again for eternity under God's justice. The invitation is there to come and behold, receive Jesus Christ by faith for all who are apart from him shall perish. They will receive the full brunt of justice against their sins. Verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Have you made Jesus Christ your refuge? Have you fled to him? like a cave in a storm, and thrown yourself into his loving arms, trusting that he can save? Have you thrown yourself into his promises, knowing that he can keep 
what he has said, which is that all sinners who come to him will find safety and salvation in him. John Piper wrote a a poem called The Calvinist, and it's pretty much just an autobiographical uh, story of the life of somebody who knows God is sovereign, God is good, and I am neither of those things. Some of the last phrases say this. Speaking of this, of this man, he says, see him stray. This has been the, the story of Psalm 73. We stray. Lord, my, my heart wanders. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God to love, the God that I love. He says, see him stray. He groans. One is true, he owns. What is left of me? Fallibility. See him in lament. Shall I now repent? Yes, and then proclaim all is for his fame. See him worshiping. Watch the sinner sing. Spared the burning flood only by the blood. See him now asleep. Watch the helpless reap, but no credit take, just as when awake. And see him nearing death. Listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain, final whisper. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the reminder, the stark, the honest, the almost blasphemous reminder of the thoughts that we have. The way that that we see our own difficulties and our own despondencies and our depressions and our and our distrust of you, and our love of the world, and our envy, and our covetousness, even to brothers and sisters, and and to the unrighteous world. Lord, to see it all penned down in sacred scripture is to be caught, and caught by your grace. I pray, Lord God, that those who are this morning in that despondency, in the rut of, of, of sin, and wandering, and walking from you, that they would realize now that your hand is firm on their wrist, and would they feel the jolt of the Father pulling them back to them, back to yourself? Father God, would this psalm be of a, be of a, a balm and a salve to those who are, are not wandering and, and, and straying in sin, but are simply di- finding it difficult to make sense of the life situations around them, the things that are pouring down around them, and they need your help, the light of your Scripture, to throw and to cast hope and your promises into their heart. I pray, Lord God, for those who are far from you, who have, for every logical reason, for every way that we would look at that, Lord, it seems that they were never truly Christians. It seems that they've walked away from your covenant. Maybe they're not even with us today. But for those who are, I pray, Lord God, that you would give salvation. To those who have, who have realized now that they are unsaved, to those who know that they are still in their guilt and awaiting condemnation, would you save them and give to them the pure heart that calls on the Lord Jesus Christ who saves? Lord God, would we as a people walk with one another, love each other on the basis of what we see here to to strengthen one another and pull one another through that we might be the the very hands that God uses to lead one another by your counsel. And God, with every confidence and with all joy, even amidst our struggles and our suffering, we pray what the psalmist has written, that we know that afterward you will receive us to glory. It is good for us to be near you, for we have made the Lord God our refuge. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. And thank you for preserving us until the day when we will see you face to face. And in the name of Jesus, everybody said, Amen. Amen.